0: Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast A few housekeeping points before we begin Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced So people, verses, hadith, etc. They are all in the episode notes Which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few But when you listen to longer form episodes The notes are meant to be a resource and an aid Number two I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these catalogued, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles, through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study, and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith, and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, And at this point, I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes. I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. Oftentimes we read uh, the books of the people that came before us and we're always intrigued, you know, by what they have to say and we have this moral issue in which we usually assume that those that came before us are morally better than we are. And that's because the Prophet he told us that the best generation is my generation and then the one after that and then the one after that. So morally we, we look backwards uh, in a sense. But in the process of looking backwards morally sometimes we also look back academically. And that can be a double-edged sword. So, what am I what do I mean by that? You can read a book of fiqh that was written centuries ago, you could read a tafsir that was written centuries ago, you could re- re- read a book of Aqidah of theology that was written centuries ago. But in that process, we have to remember that what those people wrote at that time was the extent of their skills and their knowledge at that time. And what's More important than reading what they wrote, that's very important. So I'm not saying it's not important, but what's more important than that is understanding how they thought. And if you read a book of tafsir, for example, you don't want to just learn about the tafsir, you want to learn how the mufassir thinks. If you read a book about law, you don't want to just learn the law, you want to learn how the jurist thought. If you read a book on theology, you want to know how the theologian thought. Because we are presented with the same set of problems that they were presented with. And, and, and we're also presented with problems that they were not presented with. You know, they didn't have issues of artificial intelligence. They didn't have the issue of cryptocurrency and blockchain. They didn't have the, the, the challenges of communications that we have. They didn't have the issue of, of environmental uh, the environmental crisis and pollution and global warming, so on and so forth. So we have a, a, another set of issues. So if you read a book that was written four or five a, a thousand years ago, it's not necessarily going to solve the issues that we have today. But what's but what it does help us is it helps us understand how to think the way that they thought. And it is from this general introduction that we understand the importance of one of our disciplines which is called Usul al-fiqh uh, the methodologies of jurisprudence which in essence is an Islamic invention so the science of Usul or the science of principles and methodology is something that Muslim uh, jurists primarily essentially came up with out of the need for answering the question how do we interpret the Quran and the Sunnah And how do we know that our interpretation is correct? And this is one of the things, one of the disciplines that the the Muslim scholars in the past gave us. So I want to take us through a, a set of questions, theoretical questions, that a person that is inside this discipline would ask themselves. And to see how they answered, and then hopefully at the end of it we will understand why this concept of Usul al-fiqh or uh, you know the methodology of jurisprudence how it ends up becoming one of our first principles which is you know our theme, our first principles of how we approach the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So the, the first question, and this, this is you know we're, this, we're speaking here theoretically, the first question is what is proof in religion? How do I know that something is Islam and then something therefore is not Islam? Is it the person in the mosque that tells me? Is it our, my parents, my friends? Is it simply uh, the people that were alive during the time of the Prophet Wasallam, the Sahaba? So if you're living in like the first two, three hundred years of Islam, this is a question that actually people needed to answer. For us, I mean, it's very we kind, of, we kind of know what that is intuitive, but there was a time where this question needed to be asked. What is proof in Islam? And of course the answer is, well, it's the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And while that might sound very simple, in essence, it's very important that we remind ourselves that, that somebody had to come to this conclusion. Because that is what how the religion is formed. The religion is what is extracted from the Qur'an and extracted from the Sunnah. Not what my opinion is, what your opinion is, or all of the other things, that is what Islam is not. This does not... And here we're talking about proof. We're not talking about cultural manifestations or dress or, or things like that, custom, That's that's something else. Here we're talking about You know, orthodoxy. How do we create correct, true Islam? The first thing is, where is that proof? What we call in Arabic, al-Hujayya. Where is that proof? And the proof, therefore, is in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Now, really, nobody up until now, en masse, has disputed the proof power of the Qur'an. But many Muslims, believe it or not, challenge the proof power of the Sunnah. And I always joke, I say, you know, every family has one of these uncles that, you know, denies the sunnah and says things like, you know, if the Prophet was alive today, he would wear jeans. If the Prophet ﷺ was alive today, you know, he would drink Coke. If the Prophet ﷺ was alive today, he would use a toothbrush and Colgate. And all all of this nonsense, you know. And, And the answer, you know, to that is, well, you can say many things that are polite and not polite, but well, we don't know what the Prophet would do because he's not with us, nor will he be with us, nor do we believe that he is is coming back to us the way we believe that Christ is coming back to us. But I say that jokingly to highlight this, this issue, which unfortunately there are many Muslims and now groups, whether they be very official or unofficial, that deny large sections of the sunnah, large sections of the hadith, But when we return, the reason why we're discussing all of this is that we have to remind ourselves that no proof, uh, uh, verifiable proof in what forms our religion is first and foremost the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So then the second theoretical question that comes after that, the first one, is how can we verify, how do we know that what we have is the Qur'an and what we have is the Sunnah. So if we've established theoretically that we will take our religion only from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, and, and by that I mean its interpretation, I don't mean you know just verbatim or uh, without, and we'll come to what happens if we have something, a question that's not in the Qur'an and the Sunnah in a second. So I'm just saying that we know where we're, where the compass is pointing, it's pointing towards the Qur'an and the Sunnah. The second thing is I need to prove that what I have is the Qur'an and is the Sunnah. And this concept of verification, therefore, became almost an obsession with the early generation. Of course, at the time of the Prophet both the Qur'an and the hadith were written. Sometimes people, they don't don't know this. They think that uh, a common from the same uncles that I just mentioned previously, a common misconception they have is that oh, the hadith was written, you know, three hundred years after the life of the Prophet sallallahu It's actually not true. The Quran and the Sunnah, the hadith—I mean, the hadith—were written at the time of the Prophet sallallahu They were written on parchment. They were written on bones. Uh, you know, early uh, whatever material that they had, which was essentially at that time in ancient Arabia unparalleled. We have the concept now, well, if it's not written, if it's not documented, if it's not printed, then it didn't really happen. That's a modern bias that we have. Because pre-modern people, they just memorized everything that they needed to memorize. But even despite the fact that that was what was considered normal, the Sahaba thought that what was happening in front of them from the Prophet was so miraculous, because of course it was, it was revelation, that they wrote everything down. And you had early collections of the Mus'haf, and you had early collections of the Hadith. They were called Sahifa, you know, Sahifa of, of such and such Sahaba, Sahifa of such and such Sahaba. And we know from our own history, that during the Khilafah of, of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, and during the Khilafah of Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu, they took this effort to com- convene a committee that would compile the Qur'an in the official script and like the official, uh, you know, the official version of the Muslims of the Mus'haf. And uh, the one that happened during the time of Abu- Sayyidina Abu Bakr anhu, was the first attempt, but it was written without uh, vowels and, and the dots and things like that that we're now familiar with in the Arabic script. And then Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu, he convened the second committee. And it is because of that that we refer to the script of the Qur'an as the Uthmanic script. So the Qur'an not only is it preserved in its memory, that we memorize the verses, but it's also preserved in how it is written. There is a science in how the Qur'an is written. Because the same words in the Qur'an are not spelled the same way throughout the Qur'an. Ibrahim, for example, one time it will have a ya, yeah, one time it will have an alif, other times it will not. And the, there, are, there are experts in the script of the Qur'an. I mean, now with the printing press, that, that expertise is dwindling. But nonetheless, it's something that is still studied. How do you know and verify that the script of the Qur'an is the correct script? Even if the verses are in the right order and they're, they're, they're put together, everything is fine, they have to be spelled a certain way. They have to be written a certain way. Now why would the Muslims need to do that? If, if, If it's permissible to write a word this way or write a word that way, why do they have to preserve exactly the same spelling in this instance and the same spelling in that instance? Because of the first question that we answered is that this is where religion is derived from. So therefore we need to make an effort to preserve and to verify that every verse that we have, that every mushaf that we have, is without doubt the Qur'an that was revealed to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi and, and, and you've heard me say this many times, but there are no discrepancies in any manuscript or printed Qur'an throughout the history of Islam. There is no missing surah or missing juz or missing verse, it doesn't exist. The Qur'an is the same Qur'an, nothing has changed whatsoever. Because <coughs> the Muslims were obsessed with this concept of verification and the same concept of verification also took place with the sunnah again sometimes we forget these points of our history but the verification of the sunnah we're more familiar with the chain of transmission you know we always begin the hadith like if somebody's giving you a khutbah or a class you know the hadith that's narrated by abu huraira for example but that's not the only person that narrates the hadith there's a, a list a chain of people Connecting the person speaking back to that companion, back to that Prophet Wasallam. and that chain of transmission used to verify the Hadith was the same concept, the same chain of transmission that was used to verify the Quran. But you don't read the Quran that way. You just pick it up and say Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Alhamdulillah, I mean, that's sort of how we read it, because the chain of transmission is not part of the revelation. It's part of the verification of the text. But in the hadith, we still preserve that part. And by the way, anyone that studies the Qur'an with a licensed teacher will receive this, this chain of the, of the Qur'an, of how they received the Qur'an going back to the Prophet Wasallam. The same
1: uh,
0: ijazah, the same sanah, the same chain exists. But in the hadith, when we print the books of hadith, that's how we print it. So what people like Imam al-Bukhari and Imam Muslim, you know, radiallahu anhum, and all of the others that gathered the canon of the hadith, that's what they did. They were looking at this chain and trying to verify that this is sound, I mean, this is not so sound, maybe this is weak, but if you put one week with another week, with a third week, it strengthens it. So it's a whole science, a whole you know, lacuna of, of, of chains of transmissions that strengthen the text. Why? To verify that this is something that came from the mouth of the Prophet wasallam. Why? Because this is our religion. Our religion and the proof of the religion comes from the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Therefore, we must verify that this is the Qur'an, and we must verify that this is the Sunnah. So when we come to speak about Islam, we have no ambiguity, no doubt that what we are saying is correct. Within our belief system, of course. Now, if somebody doesn't believe in the Qur'an or the Sunnah, that's something else. So now that we know where the religion comes from, and we know that we verified it, Next comes, well, how do we know our understanding is correct? How do I know that this verse means that, this hadith means this, etc.? And it is from this that we have our tools of interpretation, which is a whole other discussion that we're not necessarily going to get into. But there are certain concepts, there are certain methods, there are certain ways of how we interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah. One way that we don't interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah is, well, well, I think it means this, or I think it means that. This is not an art. This is a science. We call it a science because it has certain rules and certain uh, axioms and principles. And this whole th- series of what we're talking about is the you know, first principles of Islam, etc. To impress upon us that this is a discipline that must be learned. So when... Somebody like Imam Shafi says, I think the verse means this. It's not what, that doesn't mean the same thing as when I say, I think the verse means this. He says, I think, i.e. using the tools of interpretation that I have, using my ijtihad, etc. I believe that the verse means this, Wallahu A'lam. And God knows best. Part of that, as we've discussed previously, is learning the Arabic language and not interpreting or deriving meaning, um, exact meaning except from the Arabic language part of it is making sure that if we're discussing a certain subject that we've gathered all of the hadith to talk about this subject rather than just some of the hadith, etc. So there are many uh, rules that we have and when somebody you know, begins their quest to study the sharia sciences, this is essentially what they're studying is they're studying these tools of how to interpret. So there can be a correct way of interpreting. And there there can be an incorrect way of interpreting, therefore. Now, this does not mean that all of our understandings will be the same, because embedded in the Quran in the Sunnah is a plural understanding of these of the texts. Words have multiple meanings. Uh, there are different ways of interpreting certain verses and certain hadith. So we've we've we have fortunately a multiplicity of interpretations that are all simultaneously correct, all simultaneously orthodox. But they all follow the same system of interpretation. That's what matters. The same tools of interpretation. The same principles, the same skills that are required to interpret and derive meanings from the Qur'an and the sunnah. In the process of interpretation, without doubt, we will be looking at verses of the Qur'an, and we will be looking at texts of the hadith. But the weight given to the Qur'an is different than the weight given to the hadith from its proof power, if you you will. The Qur'an, we believe, of course, is the eternal, uncreated word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So all of the verses in the Qur'an have the same type of proof power. They're absolute texts. Meaning, to use the language of the hadith, all of the verses of the Qur'an are sahih. There's no weak verses of the Qur'an. There's no like extra verse of Surah Al-Ikhlas that we don't recite in prayer because it's weak, but we print in the Muslim or something. It doesn't exist. right? All of the, the Qur'an is the Qur'an. But the hadith is different. There are some texts that are sahih. There are some texts that are hasan, or you know, in the middle, or okay. There are some that are weak, da'if. There are some hadith that are mutawatir, which means that that hadith was narrated by so many different people that it's statistically impossible that they conspired to make it up. Another, a higher class of sahih. And by the way, all of the verses of the Qur'an are narrated to us by tawatur. They're all ta'wetur sahih in the in the science of transmission of course i mean anything else would be would be crazy but the hadith are not like that so some of the hadith they give us an absolute proof power and some of us they give some of the hadith they give us a not necessarily absolute which is what we call in the science of usul al fiqh mutlaq and dhanni that, that some of them are absolute but some of them are partial And you need to take that into consideration as you are interpreting, as you are putting together the hadith and the sunnah to make rulings, to answer questions of theology, etc. So that becomes another, another factor, another principle that we have as we approach the Qur'an and sunnah to create for ourselves matters of religion. But because we are a community that you know, that transmits our findings, as it were, generation to generation. as we now look back, you know to over you know a thousand and you know four hundred years of scholarship, there are also issues, it's not like all of the issues we've only thought of. Many of the issues that we think are are issues actually have been resolved in the past. And when issues are resolved in the past, taken into consideration everything that we've set up until now, we call this resolution the consensus of the community, the scholarly community, what we call in Arabic ijma'. So if there's an issue that there's consensus about that we don't have to debate it anymore, we accept it as something that's incumbent upon us. And this is another issue that unfortunately a lot of contemporary Muslims stumble on and they they don't understand this concept of ijma, or even worse, they reject it, and therefore they're, they, they're wanting to uh, you know, have a fresh and new uh, in, level of interpretation to certain concepts. <coughs> you hear this quite frequently when it comes to discussions of women's dress or multiple marriage, you know, polygamy. You know, the issues that are not considered socially acceptable according to the dominant culture today, Muslims will, t- you know, some Muslims will tend to want to re-examine or reinterpret in light of modern or whatever they, however they phrase it. But what they are doing transactionally is they are going against this concept of consensus. Well, this issue issue has been settled. Nobody has interpreted this verse in the history of Islam other than this way. That's that's a that's a sealed matter. That's as if you have read a verse of the Quran that explicitly says that, whatever that case may be so issues of consensus and they are by the way uh, not so many not not so many that you would think in other words the plurality of interpretation is the majority of our interpretation of the quran and the sunnah but there are some in- issues that are just well that's just that's the way it is that's the, every generation has understood that so if every generation has understood that then we accept that as also part of our religion now again remember this set of theoretical questions that we're asking, is for us to be able to in, develop in front of us, you know, correct, real Islam. That's what we're trying to, in, you know, in, in, this, in these few minutes that we have together. The fifth step in these theoretical questions is to ask, well, what happens if we're talking about something, that we don't find in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, directly? Uh, what if there's you know, a new thing that's happened, a new technology, a new custom, a new transaction, all of the things that we have today that we do not find explicitly in the Qur'an or explicitly in the Sunnah? So the, the scholars of this discipline of usul al-fiqh, they said, okay, well, we need to also allow for some type of analogy. We will look at the Qur'an and we will look at the sunnah, of course, to, to derive rulings directly for the things that we are direct, like you know, matters of wudu, or matters of prayer, or matters of fasting, or matters of zakah, or hajj that are very explicit but for other things that are not explicit, the ibadat, the acts of worship they're, they're explicit, you know there's no new worship, act of worship that we have to you know, consider. But in social interaction, which is the majority of our life, there are many many new things that, that occur. So we look to the Quran and the Sunnah, also, we, we look to them, uh, let me phrase it a, a little better, we look to the Quran and the Sunnah, for the prima facie interpretation, but we also look to the Qur'an and the Sunnah as axiomatic principles. So we'll take this verse as a concept, we'll take this hadith as a concept, and therefore if we find something in the you know, uh, new, we will see what type of Qur'anic or hadith concept does it fall under, and therefore we can employ this analogy and say, well, in this case, we rule this way, so in this new case, we would rule that way. So the concept of analogy becomes very important. And this is what allows us to, to state the following claim that Islam is valid for every time and every place and every circumstance. And that's one of our, you know, our articles of belief. is We do not believe that the Sharia or the Quranic message or the Sunnah or whatever is confined to the time of the Prophet and the Sahaba but rather it continues to guide and inform our actions today. Well, how can it continue to inform our actions today if everything that we have now, almost everything we have in our quote-unquote dunya life didn't exist at that time? Well, the answer is in this discussion of analogy, is that we do not limit the Qur'an and the Sunnah by the specific circumstance of the verse or circumstance of the hadith, but we use them also as axioms, as principles, as concepts and Allah Ta'ala refers to this in the Quran saying in in the Quran is every example you know for you will read in the Quran this means that well okay then all of these are examples for us to understand <clears throat> and this is this part is super important in the modern period because when we talk about financial transactions for example uh, an area that uh, I got in, I was involved in a little bit All of our modern banking transactions, almost all of them have no parallel in the sharia. These are all new. Even the nature of currency and money and bank, all of this didn't exist before. So you have to use this concept of analogy and principles to make sense of sort of modern finance. As it relates to individuals, as it relates to businesses, as it relates to nations and things like that. And then lastly... What happens if we find texts in the Qur'an and the Sunnah that seem to contradict one another? This is another theoretical question that happens. And this is again where this concept of usul al-fiqh or the methodology of jurisprudence becomes very important because how do we then reconcile the differences? Is it an issue of abrogation, naskh? Did, did, was, was the ruling like this at this time and then later the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi changed it? Is it that one hadith is stronger than another? Or it's a Qur'an versus hadith and we give weight to the Qur'an? Or do we give weight to the sunnah? Etc. How do we reconcile the differences between that which what we have? The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi said this here." But he said something else there, but it kind of, why would he say this, but then he would also say that, that doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't make sense, that's not consistent. What is, how do we reconcile? So a lot of what we need to do is reconcile these texts. And this is where this, uh, this discussion of reconciling contradictions is very important when we talk about violence and, and extremism within the family of Islam. Because a lot of people that promote violence and extremism they do not understand this concept. That we have an overarching principle of mercy. That was the, one of the first things we talked about in this series. That everything is mercy driven. The Qur'an is the book of mercy. The Prophet Wasallam is the prophet of mercy. We are to be people of mercy. The Qur'an begins in the name of Allah, the Merciful, the Compassionate. Bismillah ar-Rahman We went on and on, we talked about this concept of mercy. If that's you know principle number one, then there's no way that that principle would breed, you know, violence and, and, and killing and slaughtering. That, that doesn't make sense. So these people, they'll say, but there's a hadith that says that. There's a hadith that says this about the kuffar, etc. And then they'll come and be like, no, you've, you, you haven't reconciled, you haven't understood. That this hadith needs to be understood in light of the greater concept of mercy. It's, for example, uh, jihad is not as you understand it. But jihad is linked to the spiritual struggle. And, and warfare, human con- conflict is something that is detested because Allah says, Kutiba alaykum al-qital wa huwa lakum, That fighting has been prescribed to you, but it is something that you dislike, addressing the Prophet in Surah Al Baqarah. So on and so forth. So, how do you reconcile these differences? So, these six questions, theoretical questions, is essentially how this entire science or discipline of Usul al Fiqh emerged. All with the aim of providing us with a framework, a mental framework of principles that we apply in reading the Qur'an and the sunnah, so we don't get lost, so we don't create rules that contradict each other, so we don't have any doubt in what we have derived, and that we don't make any mistakes in our interpretation. And that is why all of this for, for the layperson is the repository of all of this are the different schools of thought, the different madhehib. And that's why these schools of thought and schools of interpretation are so important to us. Because embedded in them are the answers to all of these questions according to the principles of that school of thought. And that's why they they are the greatest institution that Islam ever has, are these different schools of interpretation and in, scru- in school uh, of, of thought, according to these principles. Wallahu <laughs>